This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Scenario Revision. Hitchcock Truffaut. Robin at Fan Expo Redux. And John A. Keel. where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom, Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Murder of crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the shag-carpeted paneled walls of the Gaming Hut. And here we are at the Gaming Hut, looking at the scenario that we have planned out before us, and yet we want to change it. Robin, when we revise our scenarios, what are we doing? I'm I'm thinking particularly here of revising for... Uh, publication, but these, I think a lot of these tips are ones that even if you've got something that's a loose collect- collection of notes for yourself, that you can uh, find uh, some of this advice useful as well. So before we get onto the useful advice, let's get onto <laughs> the obvious advice that someone is going to want us to give. Because whenever you talk about uh, revising or editing, online, there's always um, someone who needs to pipe in to tell you that they really hate typos and mistakes. And so, yes, of course, you should do your utmost to locate your typos and eliminate them and your mistakes and your grammatical errors and your hanging lines. Uh, some, often when I miss something that I need my proofreader to catch or that I hope my proofreader will catch, it's just a sentence fragment at the end of a paragraph. Um, the challenge uh, as an author in avoiding typos is that a you go text blind at a certain point and you see what's supposed to be there instead of what is which is why you need proofreaders and editors and 
I've forgotten what the other one is. What, what's the other one, Ken? R- reason that there are uh, typos. The other reason that there are typos. Oh, the other reason that there are typos, Robin, is because we live in a fallen world, and imperfection is always going to happen. Perfection doesn't exist, regardless of what communists will tell you. Right. But nonetheless, you must strive for perfection in editing out all of those little textual anomalies that drive people crazy. And yes, of course, you should do that. That's what makes the struggle noble. But what I'm thinking of here are more uh, sort of uh, structural things. So, uh, for example, if your adventure is full of cool detail and backstory and information, uh, as you are revising it, ask yourself, how do the players ever discover this? Because you're not just creating a sort of closet drama for the GM to read and enjoy. Um, Now, some of it might just be, uh, it's not that all of the information beneath the sort of iceberg tip of what the players actually encounter needs to be exposed in the course of an adventure. A well-written adventure will, in fact, have a lot of scenes or ideas in it that will never uh, appear to any one set of players because you need enough choice in it that they do some things and not other things. And uh, you have not failed as a GM if you don't have every single scene occur, but you, I would submit, have failed as a scenario writer if you don't include things where either A or B happens and you give enough explanation to the GM to give them A or B. Um, That's, uh, I guess, going afield into part two, which is make sure there are meaningful choices for the players to make. But point one remains... If you are giving a bunch of information uh, that is uh, fun or interesting, have at least some possible theoretical way that it could get through to the players. Not that it will in every single instance, but if you've got a really cool biography for the uh, bad guy and the bad guy never talks to anybody and there's no way to investigate his backstory, it's kind of useless. Um, And, you know, you might argue, oh, well, this provides motivation for the GM Uh, to explain what it is that they're doing. Well, uh, you can either cut all that material and just go back to the very simplest uh, ideas of what it is that that character should be doing, or more interestingly, give the players a route to mine that gold. And when you're providing more doors and directions into the bad guy, you are providing more things that can happen in the scenario. You're making the scenario richer, because once there are more alternatives present, uh, and of course you can overdo this, you can wind up, you know, doing... Uh, 18 different alternative ways to get into the same haunted house. And maybe you just pick the top three and move on. Uh, But the more doorways into the story, the richer the adventure will feel in play, even if they're only picking one, because there is a sense in which they understand that they are present in a world, as opposed to just going through the necessary uh, steps of getting to the story. And obviously with, with some genres of adventure, yeah, you've got to meet the old guy in the tavern and get the map because that's how you got to the dungeon in the first place. Can we just assume that that happens without too much fault or all? Uh, one of the things that I, uh, look at when I've done a scenario is not just, um, can people get to this information? Was this scene necessary, right? If the f- point of the adventure is what happens at the jungle temple, the journey through the jungle maybe can be hand-waved, maybe can be assumed to have happened. Maybe everyone starts, uh, you lose uh, 15 random ability points from the privation of the jungle you pick, or everyone starts, you are all at half hit points uh, for, uh, from the privation of the jungle journey. The 
the, you know, get them to the doorway of the, of the dungeon, get them to the opening of the story as fast as you can. Maybe even open inside the haunted house. You've agreed to stay at the haunted house to help out your sister. Bang. There you go. And now, rather than drive them in or do the old trick that you have, why are you in the haunted house? It, it's a haunted house. It says so right on the, on the notes here. Uh, why are you there? And give the, let the players decide, uh, how they short circuited the, uh, perhaps unnecessary opening bit. Because the thing about opening bits is they can drag or they can uh, crunch up and either way they can play with pacing in a way that uh, you may not want to be able, you, you may not want to have to deal with as the GM or even as the designer. Right, because I, I think you can fall into a trap of saying, well, this would really happen in this world. It's been established in the source material and in fact, even in dialogue and previous adventures that... Uh, crossing this jungle is always arduous. It's very hard to cross the jungle. We know that that's important because that's why the uh, Red Kingdom uh, hasn't punched through and invaded the Celestial Temple because they can't penetrate the jungle. So we can't just have you get through the jungle easily. It obviates a big point of the setting. But that doesn't mean that you need to spend a ton of time on stage doing that. As you suggest, Ken, you can... uh, make the point and get out if it doesn't pertain to what's the actual theme or through line of the adventure is you're just adding delaying padding material that distracts people from seeing what the adventure is really about. And so as you um, indicate, you can easily deal with that by just uh, saying something like, okay, it's an arduous journey through the jungle. Each of you describe a thing that you did to keep the party alive on your arduous quest through the jungle. Now, you're in the temple of the parrot man because the parrot man temple is what really matters in the, in this adventure. And now the adventure has started. We've made that point about the world, but we haven't dragged it out into a big series of obstacles that obscures what is really uh, going on in the adventure. They want your crackers. Right. Um, and another thing to do is, however, is to always make sure that the level of justification that you're putting in an adventure. And I think this particularly pertains again to uh, written adventures fits the expectations of the players in that genre. So in uh, a D&D and its heirs game, an F20 game, do you sometimes see uh, descriptions of, well, here's how the ecology of this dungeon room would really work, and these orcs subsist on mushrooms and they eat rats, and here's the moss that these guys eat. And um, But if it's just a run through the complex, bust in the doors, beat up the monsters tactical game, and you've never once heard the players accept possibly as an offhand joke, evince an interest in what the ecology of a dungeon does, don't bother with that stuff because no one is interested in it. So again, look at an adventure as being like a story in any other medium or a potential story that the players activate when they actually run through it, in that you are only focusing on the interesting bits. Presumably, there is an ecology and there's, you know, these orcs eat this moss and this uh, group of cobalt subsists on that sort of fungus, but no one cares. Use your word count for the fun stuff. Yeah, the um, if it's not a word count question, it's less urgent because you might as well leave a note in because it can drive story. It's like, what happens if uh, that moss goes away? What happens if the kobolds can't 
uh, fight any rats because the rats have, you know, teamed together and now worshiping a powerful rat god. Yeah, if it's um, the premise of your adventure, yeah. the, the Moss Wars of the of the Underdark, then yeah. you, you know, you write more about Moss than you've ever written in your life. Yeah. But you can, but you can always be alert for, uh, these sorts of things as possibilities. But my point is that th- they should drive story as opposed to merely supporting story, right? That if you, if it's really important to you or you feel that it's going to be important to your players, what the orcs eat when they're not eating adventurers, make that part of the story. Don't just make it an, as you know, Bob moment when, uh, the, the sage explains how dungeon ecology works. Have it be part of the story. Have a, a kobold, you know, run into their arms saying, you've got to give me sanctuary. The orcs have, they're out of moss. They're eating everything. They, ah. And then, and now the, a, a hunger crazed orc has got like crazy more chances to attack you. He like, uh, does two, uh, strokes in a round or he does extra damage with his teeth because they're filed sharp. Uh, whatever it is, um, you make the, 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 the existence, uh, of your, of your backstory. Uh, show up in your front story. I mean, it, it's like the iceberg. If it can't stove in the side of the ship, there's no point putting it in the ocean in the first place, as far as I'm concerned. Um, another thing that you can look at when you're revising the scenario, and one of the reasons you might be revising it is because your audience has changed. And this might be true in your home game, or it might be true in a game uh, where you, uh, you, you wrote up a, a scenario uh, and the publisher came back and said, well, uh, this would have been a great Pathfinder game, but 13th Age guys expect more of this. Or this is a great Call of Cthulhu scenario, but Trail of Cthulhu players expect more of that. Or we just need it to happen in China as opposed to Nicaragua because we're doing a China book or, or whatever. And so you may be recasting your adventure for a different audience or t- to point at a different crowd. You're running it for a different game group, even though you've already run it for one game group. And it's worth looking at what the expectations are going in. And that might be a publisher expectation or it might be a, a group expectation where you previously had a really strong uh, tactician. And so you knew that if you put up a really terrible battle, the players would still be able to get through it. But just cast away their eyes, say, well, uh, Todd moved away. He's not in my game anymore. And I don't know if we've got a strong tactician in my new group. Or or conversely, you had someone who really, really liked uh, likes drama in your new group how do you recast so that the motives of the of the bad guy are more forward so that they have a a role playing hook where they can look deeply into the anti paladin's eyes and and say i understand your pain stems from being deprived of moss as a young anti paladin or whatever it is and you provide a hook it still has to be a hook for action but it's the kind of action that your player wants or is good at as opposed to the kind of action that the last batch of people to play it wanted or is good at. Because in theory, there's as many ways to go into a haunted house as there are player groups, uh, and it shouldn't necessarily, uh, a la Heraclitus, be the same haunted house every time. Right, and if you are used to running in one system, but you're writing for another apparently similar system, uh, be careful to look out for the little things that can trip you up or are unnecessary in those small differences between systems. So... For example, if you uh, originally pitched a Call of Cthulhu uh, scenario to uh, uh, Chaosium, but then you want to pitch it to Palgrain as a trail scenario, you not only have to look at the obvious questions like, I need to make this more about investigation, but also uh, Call, for example, uh, requires a big chunk in every scenario to explain what to do if the players suddenly forget that they're playing Cthulhu characters and decide to act like civilians and not confront the horror, whereas Trail has a 
rules mechanism to uh, ensure that that happens. So that's already sort of built in and you don't need to worry about it. The GM can use the drive system to make that happen. But you conversely, you, you can look at the different mechanics and you can say, oh, look, there's drives in this game. I should see where they apply to my scenario and put the notes in to backstop the GM, right? right? Um, yeah, that's the other thing you can do is if, if you need to address it, you can do it in a more shorthanded fashion. Another thing to watch out for um, in uh, sort of more uh, story-oriented procedural games where the villain is doing something, the villain has a plot and you're trying to uncover the plot and uh, defeat it, is not just that the obvious thing, which is make sure the villain's plot makes sense from their point of view, uh, which is a way that many action blockbuster movies fail because <laughs> they've been through so many uh, drafts that they've totally lost track of what the heck the villain is supposed to do, sometimes swapping in a new villain for an old one. Which, Guardians which reminds me, Robin, when are we going to talk about Spectre? Uh, when we, when I see it, which is never. Which um, is never. All right. Uh, I've heard what the plot twist is, and uh, I feel that I've had all of the pain of jabbing a pencil into my eye without <laughs> having to pay money and, and burn an evening going to do that. But you can also uh, lose track of your own villain plot as you're writing a scenario because you will have one idea at the beginning what it is that not so much what the villain is trying to do, but the particular means that they're using to try to do it, which are the things that your characters are investigating and using to figure out what's going on. But as you write, it is very common for the exact details of why they're doing this then to shift as you write the scenes and come to a better understanding of what would really go on. So when you're revising, make sure, particularly early on in the stuff that you wrote at first, make sure that it agrees with what is actually going on, because that is where you will find uh, pl plot holes that you then have to fix. And uh, if you're lucky, fixing the plot holes will result in a simpler, clearer villain plan. But sadly, very often, when you run into a plot hole, you have to go into all of this additional justification, which is a real drag. And uh, so you make sure that the uh, at the end of it, that the villain plan uh, revised to accommodate the circumstances that you ran into still is as simple and intuitive while uncovered by the players as it can possibly be. And when we are speckling the final plot hole and examining the villain's final motivation, it is probably time for us to check for passive voice and mail the adventure off and thus mail ourselves out of this segment and into another one. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, 
or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, can unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, uh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. The sound of digital projection, which is to say no sound other than what you're supposed to be hearing on the soundtrack, the smell of popcorn and us reclining in our new stadium seats tell us that we have entered a, another installment of the Cinema Hut, and this is one that we've teased earlier. Uh, we thought we would discuss the film Hitchcock Truffaut and our respective reactions to it, and I think from that into a kind of a broader discussion about the uh, nature of subjectivity and where you add in your life and how that affects how a uh, film uh, strikes you. So just to recap, uh, Hitchcock Truffaut is a documentary film that's currently making the uh, festival rounds uh, directed by Kent Jones, who is the director of the New York Film Festival. I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival. Ken, you saw it even more recently than I did at the Chicago Film Festival and uh, remember it a little better than I uh, do. So, because I saw it as the first of 45 films, but I'm going to recall it as we as we speak. So Ken, I saw it uh, as the last of 14. So Right, so there you go. The so yeah. it's fresher in your mind, so why don't you uh, continue with the recap of what we're talking about? Okay, the uh, this is a movie uh, done of a book, and the book is the uh, seminal Hitchcock by Francois Truffaut, which is called Hitchcock Truffaut because that's what the cover looks like. Um, and it is uh, the young, at that time, I think he had directed maybe two films, uh, and but he was mostly a film critic. He worked at uh, Cahiers du Cinema in Paris. Uh, the director, Francois Truffaut, writes a fan letter to Hitchcock and says, as the greatest living director, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sitting down with me, Francois Truffaut, and talking about film for a bit. And Hitchcock had recognized the skill of Truffaut, and he even more recognized the being sucked up to of uh, of Truffaut. And so he said, sure. They get together in Hollywood uh, and with an interpreter, and over the course of, I guess, five days, they produce some ungodly amount of audio tape. It's like 60 hours or, or some great amount of, of audio tape that they put together of the two of them talking about movies. And then right. Francois Truffaut takes it and he sort of edits it down and has it retranslated from the French so that he can read it back into a sort of translated the English. And then the, the bits that he puts in the book are, are kept with a lot of very much shot by shot recreations of Hitchcock scenes. So there's a, a lovely visual quality to the book as well. And it acts as this sort of Bible, not only of 
see, I told you Hitchcock was a genius, you scum, but also a Bible of how to direct something, which it turns out there hadn't really been anything like that. So when you have Hitchcock saying, here's how I set up the shot, and you have Truffaut saying, tell me about this shot, and then you have a picture of bam, 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 there's the shot. And so a lot of directors bought that book in 1962 when it came out, or they bought it in the later 60s when it came out in a revised and expanded edition to contain the last uh, two Hitchcock films that he made after doing those interviews. Um They were very powerfully influenced by it. And a lot of those directors come together to talk to uh, Kent Jones about it in the documentary. And so the documentary winds up being them talking about the book a little bit and Hitchcock almost entirely. And then sort of shown over Hitchcock scenes as well as photographic images of the conversations of Hitchcock and Truffaut, which we're hearing now on the actual audio tapes, because of course they survived. And so the documentary has Hitchcock talking about film while we're seeing the Hitchcock film unspooling on screen and Mar- and more often than not, Martin Scorsese uh, saying, uh, something about, you know, another thing you don't realize is it was very hard to see Topaz, you know, or whatever, right? Right. So the directors include uh, uh, James Mangold, David Fincher, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, Olivia Sias, uh Peter Bogdanovich is there, although he's mostly there to provide yeah, sort of historical guy. context because he was a, a was and is a great scholar of film as well as a, a director. And so you're getting all of these... Wes Anderson. Uh, Wes Anderson. Uh, all of these different perspectives on Hitchcock and when you ask, um, he's sort of a Rorschach test of cinema, and so that if you ask a director who is at all influenced by uh, Hitchcock, uh, he will the things that they will tell you will be salient to Hitchcock, but they'll be even more salient to those directors. Right. And show you what they get out of uh, those uh, directors. Now, I have fond memories of the book, which I first... Uh, had a big influence on me and on my uh, understanding on storytelling. And it was one of the first books that I read that led me to uh, start to break down stories into their components and look at how they're told. So that's something that, you know, uh, arguably uh, along with anatomy of criticism and a few other things uh, profoundly shaped the direction of my uh, life and thought. I remember uh, getting it down from the uh, stacks at the York university library and sitting there in a carol and reading it in its entirety one afternoon. So it's something that I've actually uh, never owned. I read at, at a library, but has nonetheless uh, really stuck with me. And as you suggest, the things that are uh, very influential about it are that it looked at the career of a director in total. It's sort of a uh, in interview form. It's a retrospective of his career. And also, particularly because it's Hitchcock, although he very much resists uh, trying to break things down into their thematic meaning, he is very ready to talk about their uh, technical uh, meaning in terms of how the different story beats work and why they have that effect on you. And in the film, there's a great moment, which I I don't know whether it shows up in the book, maybe does or doesn't, is that he has uh, Truffaut describe a scene that uh, he shot where the young hero of his film sees that his uh, mother is uh, out on the street with and kissing a man who is not her husband and uh, Hitchcock goes, I would hope without dialogue and then <laughs> Truffaut goes, well yeah actually I had an explanatory line in there. Um, so this book has been a big influence on me pretty much from the jump. How about for you? 
I re- I read the book um when I was a kid and when I was a kid uh, I would go to the library and I obviously you start with uh, books about the Marx Brothers because they did the lines to all the bits and monsters. Um, so I would, I, you know, was, I, I knew Hammer films before I'd ever seen a Hammer film because I'd read books about Hammer films or books about Dracula that had lots of Hammer, uh, stills in them. And then in that section, there's lots of other movie books. And so you get down the Western books. So you'd get the, the films of Clint Eastwood or the films of, uh, John Wayne or whatever and read those. And Hitchcock Truffaut was probably one of the books that I read at the time, but at the time I'd only seen you know, first of all, I was too young to appreciate it. And second of all, I'd only seen, you know, maybe six Hitchcock movies. And, right. and a lot of them were, a lot of the key ones were out of circulation for a good right. while. Yeah. So I'd seen, you know, um, uh, I'd, I'd seen the, the trouble with Harry, but I hadn't seen Vertigo. Right. So it, it's, it's sort of a weird little Hitchcock over that existed in my 13, 14 year old brain. And so I, I read it, but it didn't really leave an impression on me or a mark because, it was in a undifferentiated mass of other film books, and I didn't know enough about how films were made in the first place that the fact that this is the first and best ever how to direct a thing book didn't really leave a, a much of a, an impression. So I didn't then reread it actually until you uh, talked about this movie in uh, the blog, and I said, "Oh." I wonder if I still own that book, and I turned out I never had owned it, so I ordered it off Amazon. So I read it. Just before I saw the movie again, so that I, or so I saw the movie for the first time, so that I would sort of have read the book of the movie. But again, it's now so late in my film, uh, appreciating experience that I don't think that it's really had an effect yet. And it, it may once again bounce off all the other crap in my head. Although in this case, that'll be my fault, not necessarily the fault of being 11. Right. So my sense is that you approach it much more, uh, analytically where I had a, a very kind of, uh, surprising, although very understandable uh, in retrospect, and in fact, as I was having it, very uh, weirdly emotional reaction yeah. to a kind of a, a, a technical uh, movie about movies and about uh, storytelling. And I think you uh, mentioned in your review online that you were seeing different ways that you uh, wanted it to go or that you could uh, imagine it being. So I wonder if you could expand on that a bit. Well, so many of the of the of the bits in the in the movie were just um, people talking about uh, their personal experience with with Hitchcock uh, films. You know, growing up, I saw these Hitchcock films or Scorsese going on this huge uh, divagation about how hard it was to find films and how you had to sort of hunt around. And, and all of that was interesting, but it was not remotely as interesting as the little bit where you see the bit of Psycho and Scorsese's explaining why there's that little part showing above her head. And I wanted that. I wanted this to be a movie like the book where Hitchcock says, I cut here, I cut here. You can see how it builds. We do this. And there's some of that in the movie, but I wanted to see David Fincher look at a Hitchcock scene and say, oh, here's why this works. And then maybe have Scorsese look at the same scene and say, here's why this works. And it's not the same thing. Or I wanted to see, I wanted someone to ask Link. You wanted more shot by shot. Right. So. I want to, I want someone to ask Linklater, what's your favorite Hitchcock shot? Because he's not a guy who really, constructs his films in anything we would think of as a Hitchcockian way. But I, you know, I want to know what Linklater thinks of Hitchcock's uh, direction. I, I want him to talk about, you know, individual shots or at least films that drive him. Not that he appreciates. I mean, everyone loves uh, Vertigo, but I want to, I want to know what 
part of that he takes away, or at least what he sees as worthy of emulation, as opposed to just, was Psycho good? Yes. Well, there we go. We've all agreed with everyone. Uh, there is one thing that one of the directors said that uh, has come back to me that I couldn't recall when we were doing a previous segment on my uh, TIFF picks, which is where Fincher uh, says, the secret of making a film compelling is to make the fast moments slow and the slow movements fast, uh, which I found... Uh, very interesting and i will you know next time i watch zodiac mm-hmm. i'm gonna watch to see that in effect because uh he's definitely a master of that that oh, yeah. the the exciting uh really riveting uh climax of his dragon tattoo uh version is uh the main character making a bank transaction <laughs> and it's it's extremely compelling uh, and sort of suggests a way that sort of a, a plastic skill with the tools of cinema kind of uh, trumps um, sometimes uh, the uh, what we expect from a conventional narrative climax that if you do enough takes and pick the perfect absolute ones and you know what to put in those takes in the in the beginning that uh, you get something that is uh, magical and sort of uh, inexplicable. Uh, which is maybe what I love so much about film or what I look for in film and why it means so much to me. And I sort of uh, personally kind of, uh, you know, film is the medium that I really uh, respond to with that sense of awe or reverence that uh, uh, you might, uh, that might in someone else be a a religious impulse. And uh, not that, you know, films are my religion, but I have that sense of, awe when I see a really great transporting uh, film and it's an awe at human achievement and it's one that doesn't necessarily uh, come at a great concert or while reading a, a great book and I think part about of architecture, that is, do, you, do you respond that way in, in an architectural surround? Yeah, but it's it's not uh, it's not as moving to me I guess that there's something about the humanity of seeing a giant face uh, on screen in a beautiful image there are just so many components to uh, it's been argued that film is the medium that combines all other mediums so that Mm -hmm. there's architecture in film, there's music in film, there's acting in film, there's uh, writing in film, that it combines all of those things into something that goes beyond my uh, usually sort of overactive uh, intellectual perspective um, into something that that goes uh, beyond that. And and contextually, you know, to go on with why this subjectively uh, really meant to me, I, I had tears in my eyes watching... You know, clips from Vertigo, which seems weird, uh, but at the same time, uh, last year at about this time, I uh, unexpectedly lost my mother. During the festival, the previous film festival, uh, my wife's mother passed away. So it has been a very difficult, stressful year. Um, of course, losing your your a parent is difficult for everyone, and there's certainly a lot of people listening who lost their parents uh, much earlier in life than uh, than I lost my mother. Uh, so it's a it's a universal experience, but it's also for various reasons a very uh, particularly stressful experience for me in my life at this time. And sitting down for the very first film uh, of the festival, I had the feeling, oh, maybe my normal life can resume again now and maybe i can enjoy this festival and uh, be reminded of this thing that means so much to me and has been a ritual and so much of my uh history with my uh wife we've been going to the uh we met 
the night she was coming back from a festival screening, and we've gone together to the festival uh, every year since uh, 1986. So it's been an enormous sort of ritual time. You know, it's movie Christmas, as it were. And here's a movie about movies, which the festival often programs on the first night, um, that uh, really hit me in a way that I was not expecting. Um, and I'd had a previous experience of that many years ago. They had a documentary about the, uh, uh, something's called Frank and Ollie, about two key Disney animators, and projected on a gigantic screen, uh, there were perfect images from all the original Disney films. And so that, when you see that in that really uh, sort of uh, penetrating way, that kind of brings back all these kind of memories of childhood that come rushing up through. And I think that's, you know, and we could do a whole other segment about how the Star Wars movies have uh, changed people's relationships to uh, childhood ever since they came out and how your responses to them and the um, the sort of vitriol when you're disappointed has uh, so much to do with that, you know, deep subconscious uh, relationship to that material. So um, what this suggests for me is that, you know, we're often trained when we're analyzing things critically to be objective, be objective, look at the three Aristotelian questions, see if this film, you know, what is this film doing? Uh, how well does it do it? Was it worth doing? Um, but then there's the subjective response of this is just very meaningful and uh, creates a reaction in me that goes, uh, that isn't even a, a conscious uh, reaction, but a sort of a welling of emotion and that you can see a film that is just at the right place in your life at that time that it really speaks to you. And uh, it may be a classic film that uh, you can explain to everybody else why it worked on you in that way. Or in this instance, uh, it can be a documentary that's going to go on Netflix eventually, and people, I assume, and people are going to see it and they'll like it because it's well done. But I don't know if there'd be anyone else in the world who will have been... Uh, uh, you know, had tears streaming down their face while they were watching it. Yeah, I, I think that you know the 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 question of individual response to film is kind of an interesting place to go because it's you know part of it is just the question of individual response to all art, right? I mean, we say a piece of art is great if it generally it, it encompasses the same batch of responses from most people who see it, but there are people who are you know not moved by Shark Cathedral or the Parthenon. There are people who are not moved by uh, Vertigo. Um, and there are people who are super moved by animated cartoons or Star Wars or whatever, uh, for whatever reason. And one of the things when I was watching it, because you mentioned in your blog that there was this huge uh, re response that you had to it, was I was watching it, first of all, you know, uh, wondering if it was at a quality of this film that somehow I was going to have a similar response. And I didn't, obviously, because I was in a different place uh, emotionally and, and in my own you know, life and probably in my relationship to Hitchcock in the movie. And I think that's why the people talking about their relationship to uh, Hitchcock and where they were in their lives when they discovered them, why that was so much more profound for me. Whereas for you, you were, uh, that was just sort of something that you wish that, that there was less of. Yeah. Because I wanted more directing in a movie about a book about directing. But what I was able to do was have, uh, often I will see movies because Chicago is after Toronto and you will have seen a movie and re reviewed it one way or the other. And I will see a movie. And if you've already reviewed it, I will be watching it partly with my inner Robin, right? That's 
okay, Robin saw these things. I should keep an eye out for these things. And sometimes when I'm watching a movie with my inner Robin, it's like I'm watching a movie with actual Robin. I have a feeling of, of great fellow feeling, right? Of, of you and I are together in this thing. And for me, because my inner Robin was turned on because you'd already seen it and you'd had such a huge emotional reaction to it, but because the movie is also about this sort of uh, collaborative friendship between these two great artists, for me, it was very much a Ken and Robin movie uh, because it's about Truffaut and Hitchcock, you know, mutually appreciating and working together to create, in this case, a great documentary about uh, a great document about Hitchcock because Hitch is Hitch. But um, I also was moved by it as a movie about collaboration in a way that even though a lot of these uh, directors are saying, oh, when I watched Hitchcock, it, it did this to me and I appreciate that. With the except with a partial exception of Bogdanovich, I didn't really get a sense that any of these guys were talking about other people than themselves, right? Even for someone like Linklater, who's a really sort of open, uh, he's like the anti-Hitchcock in a lot of ways as a as a director and as a person. But when he's talking about the things, he's still kind of talking about Richard Linklater. It's not a him and me type attitude the way that we got with um Truffaut and Hitchcock in in, in the in the movie cuz only in that context are you going to see two directors uh forging a collaborative relationship even if it's a, just a collaborative relationship to talk about the films of one of the senior of those two exactly and being a director is basically you're you're the lone wolf controlling the vast uh, machinery or directing uh the you know this having all these questions thrown at you so you sort of a need to be a supreme egotist with a unique vision in order to be good at it. So it's sort of unsurprising that uh, so few of them talked about collaboration or when they did, they talked about it in Hitchcockian terms because he was famously uncollaborative with his actors. Right. Yeah. They talk about a scene where uh, Hitchcock needed Montgomery cliff to look up uh, so that in the reverse shot, he could, show you a thing on a building that was a piece of information you needed for that movie and Clift, the uh, one of the consummate sort of uh, method actors said, but what if I don't feel like uh, looking up and Hitchcock says, cause I need you to look up for the story to make sense. And it's told as a, uh, you know, what a fool Montgomery Clift was to uh, question Hitchcock uh, story, uh, which is a, you know, an, another, uh, you know, a, a an interesting story of uncollaborativeness. Yes, it leads into the great line, actors are cattle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which um, uh, I uh, I actually used it at, at game night the other night, where it is, players are cattle. <laughs> 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 Which is wrong, by the way. Role-playing yeah. is a collaborative art, but I, I wanted to get them back on something remotely approaching the story. Yeah, although if you, if like cattle, if one of them decides to go somewhere, uh, they'll go there. And another thing about the film that really struck me is... Uh, when uh, you hit your 50th birthday and when your um, mom passes away a few weeks before that, uh, feelings of your own mortality naturally surface and worries about the uh, mortality of others surface as well. And another thing about the film that I found very moving is the idea of leaving behind a creative legacy. And all of us who are involved in anything uh, creative uh, I'm not saying I'm a Hitchcock or, or uh, Ken, you're an Eisenstein, but uh, you hope that you, if you dedicate your life to creating things, 
that you are going to leave something of yourself behind, that you are going to, uh, and in role-playing, that's about uh, creating uh, tools for other people to play with and that you've activated other people's creativity. And I think uh, the, the chances of having a legacy depend hugely on whether uh, tabletop role-playing as we know it is just sort of a, a blip uh, you know, like uh, like Eurythmics or uh, some other uh, briefly known uh, pursuit or, you know, becomes an art form that continues to be experienced over time. Uh, but that is also something that was really uh, striking me is, uh, you know, Hitchcock himself uh, was a lovely man to a lot of people and not so lovely to uh, other people, notably uh, actresses that he had crushes on. And so if you are uh, judging him as a, a person, he's a dark complicated figure who made dark complicated films but in a way i still feel that you know he made an enormous uh contribution to human culture and that that is uh to a considerable degree uh redemptive yeah i mean, i think that you know the, the the history of art is full of people who were awful um the history of everything is full of people who are awful uh that's because it was people by and large that did it um i think that when you think about legacy the interesting thing about Hitchcock and the thing that I think we all have to keep in mind is that for the first 30 years of his career, 40 years of his career, he no one would have thought that Hitchcock had a legacy. Everyone thought, well, you're making little, you know, uh, pot boilers, little things to keep everyone happy, the proles. But all the art film is happening somewhere else. The stuff that we're going to have legacies that we're going to talk about in the future is not going to be notorious. It's not going to be the lodger. It's not going to be the man who knew too much. It's going to be, be serious social dramas serious with a lot social of talking. dramas that, that have, you know, big issues. And it's Truffaut, not all by himself, but with Andre Bazan and about four other guys who get together and say, nope, we are single-handedly going to divert the train of cultural criticism, and we're going to give Hitchcock a legacy in a way. We're going to give uh, John Ford a legacy. We're going to give Howard Hawks a legacy. A lot of the the guys that the auteurists loved, they loved not just because they were, you know, tremendously single-minded visionary directors who spoke in a relatively constrained artistic palette, but also because the big fancy guys didn't love them. And so it was just a matter of thumbing your nose at the critical establishment. And so the question of a legacy is contingent and Hitchcock is a great example of its contingency. The fact that he, did he never win an Oscar? He, he won like one Oscar, one of those really late, Oh I my just God, got an honorary better give him one before he dies type Oscars. No, I mean, no, no Oscar for actual directing. No, no Oscar for best director. So right there, that tells you everything you need to know about, uh, artistic criticism, and it also tells you everything you need to know about the establishment in any field whatsoever. Uh, so the question of legacy is that the legacy has to be, it, it has to speak to not just whoever is deciding what's uh, worthwhile now, but it has to potentially be open to people decades down the road and that whether or not that will be discovered the way that John Donne uh, was in complete obscurity until T.S. Eliot said, oh, by the way, second greatest poet of the 17th century, John Donne. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right, T.S. Eliot. But that was 300 years that no one cared who John Donne was. Um, so the question of artistic legacy and artistic permanence, even in a, media, in a medium that's as famously transient as film and to a medium that's even more transient, like role-playing game design, uh, I think that's, that's sort of a big pregnant question. And I, again, I'd read your, your blog when I was watching, uh, 
Hitchcock Truffaut. And I deliberately didn't think about that because the question is so vast that it would have sort of, uh, overwhelmed, uh, the part where I just wanted to find out how Hitchcock directed that scene. Uh, well, uh, we're all about vastness. Yes. The sublime. We are the Burkean sublime in podcast form. Um, well, perhaps this segment is over, although I suspect we will have more to say about Hitchcock, uh, in later times and perhaps even more to say about Hitchcock Truffaut. What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Once more, we enter the ecologically conscious confines of recycled audio, in which Robin recycles audio from that Fan Expo Toronto, or Fan Expo Canada, which is it? It's called Fan Expo Canada, which means it's in Toronto. Which means it's in Toronto. Take that, Montreal and Vancouver. Uh, The Fan Expo Canada audio from the panel that was entirely attended, or at least the question microphone was monopolized, by Deep Ones from Maine. How do I create stronger second acts? Right. Um, well, to ex- expand on that a bit. Uh, middles are hard, and they're hard in, in uh, fiction and novels as well. And uh, another way to also look at that is the, the middle is the point where they get to play. That's the sandbox. That's where they get to make choices. So that if you're not thinking about how do I get them there, but rather what choice can I give them that they will find interesting? And by the way, either choice, I will still have a way to get them there. Um, but if they feel that they're deciding things rather than being pulled along on a, a ride with tracks, uh, that will uh, solve the problem for you. And also, things will come up in play that you can improvise around, so that uh, if the giant, you know, they go to where the giant has been stomping on everybody's hay mounds, and uh, somebody, you know, one of the characters is going to ask you a question you didn't expect. It's like, well, what's in the uh, what's in the barn over there? That uh, and, and they, oh, well, 
you know, actually in the barn, it turns out that uh, the blue cow, that's the famous blue cow that this village is named after, the village of blue cow. Oh, I forgot to mention the village is called blue cow. Well, <laughs> guess what? The cow that assures prosperity for everybody uh, for 100 miles. Oh, it's missing too. We didn't even think to look for the blue cow because we were inexplicably concerned about the hay mound. And so uh, you can, f uh, you know, chunk things in just in response to questions. And then all of a sudden, this is about going and getting blue cow back. And then, you know, you may have not planned that. You didn't plan that. It's obviously from the name blue cow. It was improvised on the fly. Uh, but that, uh, so, it, you know, put it to them. Whenever you're in doubt, in the, especially in the middle, ask them a question. It's like, so uh, you've got, uh, you can go and uh, follow the cow tracks or you can uh, follow the giant tracks, but they're two diff different sets of tracks. Uh, which, which way do you want to go? It looks like maybe blue cow just, you know, sensed the presence of giants and fled. Uh, that, uh, and so w w what will your choice be in that instance? And so if you think of the middle, not as a saggy bit where you're not quite sure what to do and to drag them into, but rather a opportunity to let them play and to deal with choices that you present them, it will suddenly seem stronger. And in, in fact, it may be that the players will go, yeah, we really like to fight on the dam at the end, of course, but it was really the search for blue cow that you know, really inspired us. And can we have another adventure with blue cow in it? And, and that's, that's the, the uh, hallmark of a really strong second act is something that engages their choices and gives them little subplots too, right? So that the, there's where you can build in the little things that are specific to each player, especially if you're running over a series of sessions and people don't necessarily show up every night that uh, you know the uh, the druid hasn't had much to do druid doesn't particularly hate giants but oh the druid can now track blue cow into the woods now the druid's got something to do and in the woods the druid can meet something that furthers not this particular episode but the ongoing druid backstory so the druid could go looking for blue cow in the woods and actually wind up you know finding his long lost brother and uh, you know he rescues his brother and now he's got the problem of well is you know, he's, he's trying to make sure that his brother is okay while also uh, rescuing Blue Cow. And, you know, he doesn't know it yet, but also saving half the kingdom from being inundated. How do we have a satisfying ending in an improvised game with rotating GMs? In that, you have exactly the same problem that results in the season or sorry, series finales of almost every television show you love that's serialized, this is why they're almost all disappointing because it is the uh, sort of meandering travel through those characters' stories rather than uh, that are meant to be continued all the time and then when you end them, it's just disappointing. And so uh, presumably in a rotating, rotating GM situation, they're rotating from player to GM and people have a character who's sort of their character. And so uh, what I would advise is that you uh, get all the GMs together and say, okay, we're going to wrap this up and we're going to make it a big fun thing that actually feels coherent even though we were running a sandbox game. And so which GM is going to volunteer to both have their character suddenly die uh, to trigger the final uh, climactic uh, crisis. And that GM is also going to be the GM who volunteers to create and run the big climax. And then uh, each other uh, GM volunteers what it is that they want, what big final issue do they want their character c to confront in the, in the climactic episode that really brings their character to a head and resolves 
their storyline one way or the other. It doesn't mean that they necessarily all die at the end like they would at the end of a Shakespeare play, uh, but it could mean that they are all changed forever at the end of this. And so each player can then kind of say, oh, or, uh, okay, so I want uh, my druid character to finally, one way or the other, resolve his relationship with his brother, or I want my vampire character to embrace his humanity and set aside his monstrous side, or, uh, you know, and uh, you might not necessarily uh, spell out exactly what happens. You in, in fact, probably the vampire would say, I want to finally resolve the contradictions between my human and my vampire side. And so then the uh, GM who's decided to you know, put all this stuff together takes all these ideas and thinks, okay, how do I finally wrap these all up into one big satisfying plot line at the end? What event, what plot development could possibly happen that would bring all of these things into play? And what you might also do if, you're having, if you have a really long time span is you might have each... Uh, GM introduce sort of a, a storyline that takes their character part of that way along the journey and makes it easier for you as the uh, as as the sort of designated uh, pitch hitter who ends everything. Um, and at this point, uh, one of the deep ones interjected as follows: "But we don't plan anything at all." Uh, well, I think if if you actually do desire a a big finish, um, another thing to do is just say, "Well, tonight's a big finish." everybody's responsible for moving us toward that in an improvised game. The, uh, my game Hill Folk, uh, which is all about dramatic personal interactions, uh, is very much, it's completely improvised, and there's no, there is a GM, but they don't get to move the plot along. And in that game, there's a, a mechanism, uh, basically, that kind of d develops that uh, creates a cascade of crises at the end if everybody knows it's the final episode. And without going into too much detail, part of that is that no uh, character can die without the player's consent except during the final episode. Now, there's some uh, types of drama system play where it's never appropriate for your characters to die. Like if you're doing a Jane Austen game, that they don't all die at the end of a Jane Austen novel. Just one of them gets married and one of them gets disgraced. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, you wouldn't do that there. But in anything with a possibility of, you know, violence and high drama, that becomes possible. And also throughout the game, people accumulate a resource called bennies, uh, which they uh, tend to, from group to group, and this is really interesting how consistent this is across the board, they tend to feel a point of honor of not ever spending them. Uh, because, uh, and, uh, but on the final episode, they do start to spend them, and a more of a PvP thing starts to emerge. But even there, you have to have some sort of mechanism where the, uh, there's something going on in the improv that drives people to have their... Uh, different realizations in conflict with one another so that the you know the character who wants to resolve his relationship with his uh, uh, brother can't do that unless he uh, r removes the other character's vampire side for example and so you really do need even in this super improv format to sit down to some extent and to talk out of character about where it is that you want it to go because you know even when you go to see an improv comedy show the strength of improv is not in the ending of the sketches uh, there's always someone you know waiting in the light board to turn it turn off the lights whenever it seems like anything approaching a punchline has occurred in order to give it the illusion of structure and if you want to impose structure on something that's completely improvised you do need to sit down and talk and plan to some extent because there is no structure without planning. 
How do I make the non-fighty game parts more interesting? The answer to that is they're terribly designed systems if they don't. Uh, that's the whole point of designing a new role-playing uh, set of mechanics is to create the particular sort of experience that you want players to have, and that includes uh, areas of the story. The second one I'm, I might have to draw you out a bit more on. So you're uh, thinking of systems that basically... Uh, draw you toward fighting and hitting things, basically, and what do you do to expand out from there? What are your favorite potential alternatives to monster slaying challenges? Um, what you want to do is uh, uh, find... Uh, the, the problem with uh, finding alternatives to monster slaying in systems that are heavily combat-focused is they spend all of their energy making that really exciting and breaking it down into a whole bunch of little sub-moments that can go on for like an hour of play and then don't support other uh, actions. And so what you want to do is if you, you want to have, for example, a debate uh, at the Viking Parliament be the big exciting thing at the end of the episode rather than uh, just going off and fighting the Vikings you're disagreeing with, you have to find uh, rule support that allows you to uh, do that, and some systems don't bother with that because they don't imagine that you would ever want to have a Viking moot be exciting. And so uh, if you do, you want to find, or uh, if you're not lucky, create something that's basically uh, political hit points, or social hit points, or economic hit points, or uh, whatever else it is that allows you to have all sorts of little stages and have everybody contribute in one way or the other, and then have a big exciting thing at the end that feels like there's suspense over time rather than just, you know, oh, I just roll my Viking moot politics roll and it's, it's over. Um, now, uh, part of the challenge of that is I assume that you have players who are invested in the fighty-hitty game and you want to add a rules module onto it rather than seeking out a game that treats social interaction uh, the same way it treats combat. If you want to do the latter, you could get HeroQuest, for example, one of the various games that I've designed. And there are a lot of other games as well that do the same thing. But often if you have players who are you know, really invested in their F20 game, their sort of a variant of D&D, of &D, you may have to uh, find or construct something that makes the other thing that you want to do as detailed and as participatory for everybody as fighting is. How do I make the player characters suspicious of each other in, you know, a fun way? And I do have some experience with this, as <laughs> Justin, who is grinning in the background, can suggest. And the big secret of that is to do it without secrets. Uh, so that if you uh, have... If your character goes and lays a trap for Justin's character and you go off into another room and tell me all about it and then uh, come back, Justin and everybody else knows that something's up, but they're also mad because there was a bunch of fun they didn't have that was going on in the other room, but, and you've come back and you know more than they do, and that sucks. But if instead you describe yourself lovingly creating the trap for Justin uh, and Justin is sitting there uh, listening, he is... Uh, enjoying in a perverse way the uh, the fun of, of the way that you're planning to hose him. Um, and also he's thinking, wow, what can I do to get out of this that doesn't break the fourth wall, right? I can't just use my player knowledge to uh, get out of that trap because that would just be poor form. But how do I wheedle the storyline so that by the time I get to the trap, everything that I've done makes sense 
yet nonetheless I can somehow deal with that trap and then there's some sort of unexpected you know so it's not obvious whether it's going to go one way or the other and so uh, and again in, that's something that happens a lot in hill folk in drama system where the players will sort of elegantly hose one another by introducing story elements which is something that you're allowed to do in hill folk that uh, are just sort of uh, and in order to do that you have to sort of revel in the idea of your character having cool uh, problems to, to deal with. The most extreme way I've ever done that was a campaign where there were two sets of player characters. I would rotate from week to week and the player, the different sets of player characters would hose each other over from week to week. So that one was one in which half the time they were playing the grunts on an alien planet uh, in this uh, ill-thought-out war and uh, dealing with all of these uh, trouble, trouble on the ground. But when they would issue their reports up the chain of command, they knew that the, uh, their commanders didn't really want to know the truth uh, because they, that would just get them in trouble. So at the end of each session, they would, uh, we would play out what really happened. And then at the end, they would then discuss what they would actually put in the report, which varied sharply from what really happened. Next week, they would all show up, and they would be the cabinet ministers back on Earth getting the fake report and having to deal with the political fallout of the, the report that they knew was untrue, and, so, and then uh, giving more orders. Uh, and so each week, they would very adeptly switch viewpoints. And so from, you know, as the soldiers, they would, uh, you know, do their very best to give wrong information. And then as... Uh, the uh, cabinet ministers, they would also do their very best to issue orders that made political sense back home, but would get their grunt characters in even more trouble next week. So that's an uh, that's a, you know, extreme case of dramatic irony in storytelling, where uh, not only are the players uh, hosing over other players, but one player is hosing over his one character using his other character. And that's actually hugely fun. You know, there's a lot of laughing that goes on when you uh, introduce uh, an element that you know that you're going to have to cope with later. And so that's where you create that great spirit is that if everybody is in on the joke, basically, uh, that it becomes entertainment rather than uh, frustration. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as 
Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention, Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. The gray alien uh, hanging out and eating Twinkies, the uh, alien big cat screeching out on the moor, tell us that we've once more entered the mysterious, subtly undefinable confines of the Elliptony Hut, and this time I thought we would talk about someone who uh, did a lot to define the undefinable and uh, uh, sort of resist the urge for explanation and sort of pursue uh, suggestive uh, weird craziness, and that is uh, uh, perhaps one of the deans of elliptonic writing, and that would be uh, John A. Keel. He was a, a journalist and uh, also a writer of uh, teleplays in the 60s. He like wrote episodes of Get Smart. And perhaps because of that, uh, unusually in the annals of electronic reading, his writing is good. It <laughs> it's is really good. It is engaging. It is sardonic. And uh, I think uh, his writerly uh, perspective on the material uh, informs uh, not just your pleasure in reading it, but I think also his perspective on what's uh, really going on in a Fortean uh, unexplained phenomena sort of uh, trip. And so this is a John A. Keel, and he's best known, I guess, for a couple of major contributions to uh, the field of elliptony. He's the one who identified the men in black and uh, uh, wrote about them uh, not just as people who might be, you know, FBI agents who uh, weren't quite identifying themselves correctly, but also attaches an air of alienness to them. I guess his best-known book would be The Mothman Prophecies. So he's the one who investigated uh, The Mothman and uh, added a depth to its lore. Uh, and uh, uh, one of my favorite books of his is one of his later ones, Disneyland of the Gods. And I guess that's the one in which he sort of introduces sort of his unified field theory of uh, weirdness. So, Ken, where do we want to start digging in on the works of John A. Keel? I, I think just to footnote the the men in black before we move on into the uh, magic and wonder that is John Keel, uh, I should mention that the men in black began as a hoax or a hilarious jape uh, created by a guy named Gray Barker, who was a um, sort of a, a ufologist and crank. And, uh, was felt no one was paying enough attention to him. So he came up with the notion that he was being persecuted by men in black and John Keel ran with it as John Keel habitually did with things. And whether Keel did it on purpose because he recognized a good, uh, narrative hook or whether he did it because he was a crazily suggestible person found it very easy to scare himself is one of the great mysteries of John Keel and the greatest. Who is the joke on? Who is the, the joke the, on? And yeah. why can't it be on both people? Which is one of the many wonderful things about John Keel's writing. You know, certainly when you title a, a, a book Disneyland of the Gods, you understand that he knows the joke is on all of us. But uh, when you read the Mothman prophecies, which I have said before is the finest horror novel published in 1975, including Salem's Lot, you don't know who the joke is on because John Keel 
provides a brilliant narrative of creeping paranoia and dread all presented in a not matter of fact, but in a, uh, Truman Capote ish nonfiction voice of, of going to investigate the Mothman in West Virginia and discovering that there is more to the story than he thought there was. And he thought that he was safe because the Mothman had collapsed the bridge in 1967 and nothing bad could happen to him. But of course, once you go in, you can never come out. And that I think was John Keel's great lesson to all of us is once you start thinking about UFOs and you start thinking about elliptony, you are always thinking elliptonically and you are always saying, what if that's true? What if that's the story? What if that's going on? What if that guy has been following me? And depending on exactly, you know, what cocktail of acetylcholine you have in your head, you're going to wind up either a believer or an experiencer, or better yet, you end up John Keel and produce uh, the masterpiece that is the Mothman Prophecies. And I should also recommend the movie, which surprisingly for something starring Richard Gere, uh, was really good and really captures a lot of what it feels like to read the book, but you should definitely read the book as your, as your doorway into, uh, John Keel because that sort of lays it all out and gives you the psychological background that you, I think, uh, really benefits when you go and you look at something like, uh, UFOs Operation Trojan Horse, which of course is the great secret or slanted, uh, slantendicular rebuttal of the old UFOs exist argument that the UFOs are, are real honest to God spaceships and they come from real honest to God stars or planets and they land and there are real honest to God aliens that come out and deal with us and Keel in Operation Trojan Horse adduces chapter and verse of UFO sightings, chapter and verse of numbers of other supernatural encounters to say, nope, UFOs are just what we currently call that weird crap we're always seeing. And that does not mean the weird crap is not real. But what it does mean is it's probably not little green or gray men from Venus or Zeta Reticuli. What it means is it is something from another dimension that is deliberately messing with us. And that is one of the exciting sort of, you know, once you've gone through that door, you never go back to boring old uh, grays and boring old uh, reptoids. You've got a whole ontoverse, a whole ca- a whole cantoverse of craziness to to, to, to navigate now. Right. He takes the, the psychosocial theory. He's of, one of the fathers of it. Yes. Um, which is basically a, that it is, that UFOs are a, a folkloric uh, phenomenon rather than a, a literal aliens from another planet. But then he adds radical subjectivity to it. The idea that you can be an experiencer and you are someone who, uh, it, it might be, that you are hallucinating, that your uh, mind is just a, a different per- perceiving organ than most people's. But it could also be that you are capable of entering a subjective space, that suddenly things start to happen to you, and those things do have some sort of a, a real dimension to them. And that's why, you know, if you uh, go to the, a, you know, a weird... A uh, lot that someone owns out in the woods where there's this weird hole in the ground and there's strange uh, kind of figures associated with that who you meet. And then you go back home and all of the, the paintings on your wall are slightly shifting in their frames that these things are all of a piece that you have fallen into a, a world of subjectivity that to some extent can then influence the objective world so that he is not saying that it is all bunk, but rather that there is a paranormal thing going on that may be going on for you and people in your circle, but by its very nature is something that could never be 
confirmed beyond the world of creepy, compelling anecdote. And of course, he's the master of the creepy, compelling anecdote. Yeah, he's the real heir to the extent that you can have an heir to Charles Fort. Uh, the, the notion that the world is by definition stranger than can be encompassed by any single philosophy, that there is no sort of a Gödel's incompleteness theorem of, of reality, that, uh, you can't have a single worldview that encompasses all experience. And so therefore you should have as many as you possibly can, I guess. One of the uh, great things that Keel does that a lot of other guys in the seventies did in sort of uh, honor of him. People like Jerome Clark were doing it into the eighties, but he would look at patterns. He would say, look at all these UFO cases. Why are so many of them on Wednesdays and Fridays? If UFOs are, are a, a spacecraft, why do they pick calendar days to land? What's that about? Or he would say, how come so many UFOs land at places uh, named Lafayette or named after fairies? What, what's that about? And so Jerome Clark really runs with that later on in, in his own books. And, and he, uh, he coined the term ultra terrestrial, which is one of uh, my favorite terms for the things that we're seeing. They're not extraterrestrial, but they are ultra terrestrial. Um, they are from above the world, not from outside it. Um, and, uh, he used to call himself a demonologist, which is great. So that I think that he sort of has a, a trickle back, not just through, um, the old book of the damned, uh, Charles Fort, but also to such excitable fellows as Montague Summers. And when you read Mothman prophecies, you really can read it as a novel of demonic possession or a novel of, of demonic haunting that the Mothman creature, the whatever it is that, that knocked down that bridge in 1967 and had those horrible visions that terrified everybody decided to, you know, you're going to look at me. I'm going to look at you. And it's a very Nietzschean, you know, the abyss is definitely staring back and it's also messing with your car. So uh, I guess uh, people at this point might want to be reminded of uh, what the Mothman manifestation was. Uh, the Mothman was a large shadowy, often winged, usually with glowing eyes thing that appeared in West Virginia in 1966 uh, basically running right up to the, uh, the collapse of the Silver Spring Bridge, uh, or the Silver Bridge rather in, uh, 1967. So for about a year, there were these Mothman sightings and then the bridge collapsed and the sightings stopped, which of course meant that people had better things to do than, you know, go around and, you know, their, their, their psychic pressure was busy doing other things. And, uh, John Keel comes in and he investigates it in 1975 and begins to, re-encounter or re-experience differently demonic experiences. And so uh, the Mothman at the time was thought of as just sort of an alien or maybe a, a, a depending on what it was, it might have been a cryptid, uh, some sort of unknown creature that comes down out of the West Virginia hills and messes with you. And right. then, and one that was menacing, but not as menacing as kill. Right, yeah, that, that it would um, sort of, you know, creep you out or, you know, chase you in your car. But it, what, it didn't have that sort of demonic quality that, uh, that Keel provides it in, in his, uh, in his later book. Um, and then people are all like, oh no, it was just a sandhill crane or a big owl. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's what boring non John, uh, Keel people say about Mothman. But of course, uh, if, you know, if all it has to do is demonize one person and it's a demon. Right. And like Charles Fort, uh, Keel would find strange stories and find a way to invest things that did not seem to be overtly supernatural or menacing with great supernatural menace. So in Disneyland of the Gods, he talks about a rash of car windshield shatterings as being part of a inexplicable supernatural phenomena. Now, the rule of parsimony uh, would suggest that perhaps a rash of windshield smashings 
maybe isn't supernatural, <laughs> but the way that he writes about it, it sure uh, seems to be. And so uh, I think sort of uh, the interesting thing about his work as inspiration for gaming or for uh, horror writing or, or uh, modern fantastic writing is that idea that just that the nature of anything that is a crack in our everyday consensus reality is by that very nature inherently terrifying. That once you uh, start to acknowledge that those uh, street full of parked cars, that their windshields were shattered by something other than punk kids that nobody noticed, that there was something else, you then that admits a whole other range of possibilities and that you can sort of, uh, just by thinking about what that could possibly be, you can become an experiencer uh, to whom all sorts of uh, putatively, uh, un thematically unconnected supernatural or paranormal occurrences begins to attach itself. Yeah, the um, uh, the the capacity for noticing pattern and for inv infusing pattern with menace is so key to not just the the fully lived life, but also to game design and storytelling and everything that, especially I do as a as as a game writer and as a GM because so much of of what i produce is saying look at this odd pattern of deaths in british intelligence circles or look at this weird coincidence of earthquakes and other things that happen or look at this odd uh, number of of suicides right after the insmouth raid amongst scientific uh top minds of the day and then saying what if it's part of a bigger pattern what if it's part of a pattern that we already think is scary how what if it's all connected and i learned that to a large extent from uh charles fort but you can definitely learn the sort of the masterpiece quality of it from John Keel. Right. Fort is sort of the world is not as rational as you seem to think it is. Whereas uh, Keel is it's not as rational as you seem to think of it. And that is really scary that there's a sense of menace in Keel that isn't in Fort. And, uh, you know, the, to go back to the men in black, that's a great example of him taking uh, something that, as you suggest, was made up by a dude uh, that was just, I'm being harassed by government officials and turning it so that it is suddenly very frightening indeed, because he suggests that some of the men in black are indeed government agents, but others are aliens themselves who are coming to intimidate you and find out what you know about uh, alien uh, incursions. And they know enough about our lives. They live among us. They can drive Cadillacs. They wear suits, but they're still not a hundred percent human seeming. They have weird, funny ears. And sometimes their intonations are kind of robotic and they seem to understand some basic things about our modern life and misunderstand others. And so the idea that, uh, you know, there are possibly malign aliens among us who are, are among us enough that they can, drive cars and wear fedoras is even more frightening than the idea that there are guys in flying saucers out there who occasionally pick up a few of us for some probing. Yeah. The, um, uh, the, the capacity of, of, of John Keel to, uh, invest the, the world with terror is something that I think we can all, uh, get behind. And I should, I should also mention, uh, in both in context of our, of our ongoing concerns. He was born in upstate New York in the burned over district. So he can also be seen as sort of that tail edge of the great American tradition of eccentricity that says, I don't care if it's, if reality is, is real. Uh, what I make up is more fun. 
Um, and he also, uh, I should say, was a genuine hardworking researcher, which makes him different from a lot of these guys. He doesn't just sit around and recycle other people's stupid uh, books. He goes out and he writes his own stupid books. He go, he went into West Virginia and he investigated the Mothman. He went to India and talked to fakirs for his first book, Jadu, which is about um, uh, sort of the, the, the magic of the Indian street world, which is a entirely gone universe anyway. And if you wanted to uh, uh, sort of look into a, a, a vanished universe, uh, even more vanished than the 1970s of ufology, uh, read Jadu for a, for a shot of that. Um, so how readily available are his books today? Do you have to get them in uh, used copies from uh, AB Books or an Amazon vendor? I, I think some of them might still be in, in, in print, and they were really, really, they were published in great numbers. So even finding used books uh, for John Keel is uh, not uh, super hard to do because uh, they they printed a lot of copies of Mothman Prophecies, and they printed a lot of copies of most of his uh sort of his his great big strong classic year stuff. Um his later stuff may be a little harder to find uh just because it was published by, you know, small presses and and crazy uh UFO and conspiracy presses. But you can find um even Strange Creatures from Time and Space gets revised into the complete guide to mysterious beings and I think a real publisher brought that out. So they're pretty easy to to stumble across. Disneyland of the Gods may be the toughest one of the major books to find actually because I think it was not brought out by a big publisher at the time and may not have and may not be old enough that it is steadily pirated the way that Mothman is. Right. And and so that's the one where it's still a collection of 40 and anecdotes but sort of in between the cracks of its chapters you sort of begin to sense the uh his theory of uh sort of cracks in objective reality mm-hmm. turning you into a subjective experiencer. Um so I think uh, once we're uh, getting people thinking about going and uh, dialing up their favorite uh, used book site that I think we have uh, completed yet another episode. And so, uh, folks, please join us again next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Avoid visits from Men in Black by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Watch out for our Patreon coming in the new year. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>